0: Out there in the universe are some really fascinating objects. We have stars of all different varieties. Tiny, mid massive, red in color, yellow in color, blue in color, cool, hot. They come in all different varieties. And yet, some of them will die in such a spectacular fashion that they can shine brighter than billions and billions of stars all put together all at once for only a short period of time. These transient events are some of the most luminous events in the universe, and they can last for a brief while or they can shine for months. When we look at them in different wavelengths of light, we can learn all sorts of things about how these events occurred and what they mean and what their impact is for the rest of the universe. What are the implications of the most catastrophic events that are examples of stellar destruction? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Two of the most fascinating examples of stellar destruction in our universe can often be similar in appearance, even though they're completely different in the physics that underlies them. One of them is a supernova event where something happens in the core of a star to cause it to reach a th- critical threshold where a runaway fusion reaction occurs and either the star is torn apart entirely or the core collapses and it becomes a neutron star or black hole. When this occurs, it can outshine even the entire host galaxy where it occurs. On the other hand, we also have t- Tidal disruption events where a dense, massive object can pass by a star and rip it apart entirely, also leading to a huge burst of energy, a bright spike in luminosity, and a a runaway, very rapid fusion reaction. And here to help us untangle some of the mysteries around these catastrophic events, I'm so pleased to welcome to the podcast Dr. Yvette Sendes, who is a postdoctoral scholar at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astronomy. Yvette is a fantastic researcher who specializes in radio waves and the radio portion of the spectrum. But if we want to understand these events, we have to take everything we know about them together. Yvette, I'm so pleased you've joined us and welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thanks for having
0: me. I'm really, really excited about this. So if I wanted to say, okay, um, if I see a really bright, optical flash of light in the sky where I maybe even knew I had a star or I had a point of light before, and then it just brightens tremendously and slowly starts to fade away. How can I know what it is that happened? What tells me whether this was a supernova, a tidal disruption event, something else? How can I know what happened just from looking at it?
1: Yeah, sure. So there's a few clues that you can tune in on. So the first thing we should note is most of these things are in galaxies that we see much far farther away than our local galaxies like Andromeda Galaxy or the Magellanic Clouds or things like that. When we're seeing these flashes of light, they're occurring very, very far away. You really only have a point source. You really have at the beginning a light curve, usually an optical light or X-ray light or something like that. So there's a few things you can tell from that. The first thing is you could look at the colors in it. You can take a spectrum, so split that light finely, see what sort of elements there are in it. And another thing you can do is if you're tracking it over time, you can study the light curve of this object. So you can see how is this light curve evolving over you know, of the first few days, first few months. Uh, You can even do machine learning to say, I'm interested in this sort of object. It has this sort of light curve and then try to uh, discover those specific objects you're interested in out of all the different objects. So there's all sorts of things like that you can do in the first initial I see the flash and it starts to fade process.
0: Now, is that. Is that enough to always tell you what the nature of this is? If I if I see the flash and I, I can take a spectrum of it, break it up into the light's individual wavelengths, um, does it help if I observe how it brightens and fades over time? Do I sometimes need to look at uh, different wavelengths of light other than what I can see into the optical? Or are all of those things useful but for different reasons than determining the origin of what actually happened.
1: Yeah, so we have a huge electromagnetic spectrum, right? It probably you know goes all the way from gamma rays at the highest energy down to radio waves at the lowest. And each part of the electromagnetic spectrum gives you a different piece of the puzzle of what's going on. They' all there's a different physical process that occurs in all these different parts of the spectrum. So, yeah, if you see a big flash and it's not immediately categorizable, uh, you might, you know, uh, point an X-ray telescope there, a radio telescope, something, try to gather more information because, you know, if you see X-rays, that's from usually like a glowing gas, for example, then that can tell you what is going on versus if you don't see that sort of signature.
0: Because I understand that even even among supernovae, there are many different classes of supernovae and they correspond to different types of objects that undergo their death in often wildly different fashions, even though they all have certain things in common, right? They, They all have these runaway fusion reactions, they all get really bright, they all fade away. Um... But some of them produce remnants and some don't. Some have uh, lots of light elements in their spectra. Others don't have hydrogen. Others don't have even helium. Um, what What is it that, you know, I guess the thing I'm really interested in when I think about this is... Um, there's so much we can learn from what's out there in the universe. Um, when I think about this isn't just astronomy, where we're observing it and recording what we see, but astrophysics, where we're trying to figure out what what processes are happening out there, what's causing the universe to appear the way it does. That's, that's where I get really excited about this. So so what can you tell us about how we identify what's actually happening out there in the universe
1: yeah sure so the first thing that uh how this process unfolds which i think a lot of people don't realize is by this point finding supernovae like it sounds you know it's a very rare event for an individual galaxy a galaxy like our size is going to have maybe one or two every century so not very common at all But if you're looking at the entire sky, these automatic sky surveys now will find, you know, several a night. I believe last year it was about 18,000 new supernovae were discovered. As you said, though, there's different categories and they all have names like type 1A is a very common one. We use those to measure the expansion of the universe. So people are very interested in studying those. They also tend to be much brighter, things like that that you can look for. But, you know, there's a ton of other different ones like type 2N, type 2, you know, all sorts of different things. And the reason this is interesting is if you have 18,000 and you need to do things like study the light curve and look at the spectrum, this all takes telescope time. We do not have enough telescopes on Earth to follow up on all these objects. So identifying which ones you're interested in is actually, you know, pretty difficult. And then every scientist is interested in different physical questions, different physical things that are going on in this bigger umbrella of what we call high energy astrophysics. So yeah, then there is this huge question of how do you follow up? Usually what I am doing uh, lately, for example, is I'm studying for tidal disruption events. Uh, We know that something that, you know, if you have a star that explodes in a galaxy, Uh, it's going to be, you know, over different parts of the galaxy. If something happens at the center of the galaxy, though, it's much more likely to be related to the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. So, you know, that's your first clue. Ooh, uh, I see something at the center of the galaxy. Let's see what's going on. When you take the spectrum, if it's a star that was ripped apart instead of going in a supernova explosion, a supernova explosion, you don't have any hydrogen left anymore because hydrogen... Is burned into helium as the star burns so uh, and then eventually explodes later in its life. So if you see a lot of hydrogen, that's a good signature that, you know, oh, this was a star that was still fusing until it got shredded by the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. So there's signatures like that we're going to look for. And then we're going to follow up in radio uh, and study this process further as it unfolds. Um, I'm specifically usually not doing the initial discovery and classification in my research. I'm usually just waiting to see what other people have found and then uh, jumping on that and looking at it further.
0: So you're you're not uh, the first line of defense that goes to these transient observatory detectors. And I can't blame you for that. I. I'm not sure about this. You probably know better than I do, but you said there were 18,000 new transient events that are likely supernovae uh, happening each night. Well, not each
1: night, each year.
0: Each year. Okay. Okay. But I think, I think 18,000 is more than the total number of supernova events that were known when I started graduate school uh, just a hair over 20 years ago. So the fact that we are taking basically all of the knowledge that we had accumulated up to the start of the 21st century um and we're getting more than all of that each and every year that goes by that's that's a really tremendous advance in terms of statistics and the number of events that we have to base our understanding on you know i I always think this is an underappreciated part of science is how much more we learn and how much better we understand the universe when we have a large number of events as opposed to, um, you know, just any smaller number.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Um, There's people in my group who are working on this. So they said it's a huge problem. How do you find the ones that you're interested in when you have a huge haystack of 18,000 events uh, every single year? And that number of course only increases every year it's really become a complete game changer um back so i study a lot of objects that you know a supernova that exploded decades past things like that uh just because i'm interested in how they evolve later and you know up through the 1980s 1990s it's like the first object you find that's a supernova supernova 1987a is called that because it was the first supernova in 1987 for example then it would be b c whatever uh, you don't get past really, you know, a few dozen maximum until the 90s. People Because st- it used to be you would just happened to be looking at a galaxy. Oh, there happens to be a supernova in that galaxy. It wasn't a systematic thing. And this past year, they got to four letters. Uh, so it was like, you know, supernova 2020 ABCD or something, because they keep cycling and adding letters to the name. I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah.
0: So you're basically saying, initially, we could just put one letter after there, after the year, because you'd never get 26.
1: Yeah. Um, after 26, and- then, of course, you go to AA, then AB, AC, AD, then keep going. And by the time you're at 18,000, it's like A. A. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's just so many supernovae now. It's incredible.
0: Wow. So you're, you're telling me that we get so many that 26 cubed Isn't enough to hold all of them, and we need to go to a fourth letter now. Yeah,
1: I guess. Wow. (laughs) That number. Wow,
0: that's that's a very impressive number of events per year. Yeah, Um, so
1: twenty-six cubed, I just checked, is seventeen thousand five hundred seventy-six, and they went to four, so we definitely got to eighteen thousand now.
0: Wow, you definitely did. That's that's really exciting. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you for the math uh, refresher. Uh, That was awesome. So, can I ask? when it comes to tidal disruption events, right, this is, when I think about these, I think, look, these stars that are out there in the universe, the ones we see, they're all happily chugging away, going through their life cycles. Most of them we think, are going to die of natural causes, which is to say they'll they'll burn through their hydrogen, if they're massive enough, they'll burn through their helium, if they're massive enough, they'll burn through carbon and oxygen and blah, 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 until they can burn no more. And then they will die of natural causes. Either they'll go supernova or they'll blow off their outer layers and give off a planetary nebula and become a white dwarf. Um, this is, this is like the natural life cycle of a star. When you talk about tidal disruption events, you're basically talking about a star that should have been able to look forward to a long, rich, healthy life ahead of it, that it wasn't done doing what it was doing. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, this massive compact object, it got too close to it. It got ripped apart. And that was the end of it. That's a tidal disruption event. Basically, um, this is a star that was just living its life and it was in the wrong place in the wrong time and it got murdered. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's really what it is. Uh, I never thought of that before. But yes, these are stars that did not die of natural causes. So the way to think of this is so even in our own galaxy, if you look at the center of our galaxy, we have Sagittarius A star is our supermassive black hole that we, you know, know and love. And we have videos, right, that people, astronomers can look at stars orbiting the center of our supermassive black hole and track them over years. They won the Nobel Prize for this last year, uh, two astronomers, or you were part of UCLA and one out of uh, Bur- or, uh, Germany. And so you can imagine, though, like, you know, if one of those stars had a gravitational interaction too close with another object, it changes its orbit or something like that. Gets too close to that black hole, and it's going to you know start getting pulled apart because there's incredible tidal forces surrounding you know a supermassive black hole. Uh, and it's kind of similar to like you know if a comet goes too close to the sun, it actually breaks apart because there's too many tidal forces. But that's really what happens to the star uh, when this occur uh, when they go too close to the supermassive black hole at the center. Um, the other thing to note, though, is this is definitely not as common as even a supernova. So, you know, maybe one percent of all stars uh, in our galaxy or uh, out there are going to end in a supernova explosion. You need a very large star to, you know, uh, end in a supernova at the end of its life. Uh, so they said we only get, you know, one or two of those a century in our galaxy. Uh, We expect a galaxy like ours to only have a tidal disruption event every 100,000 years. So they really are not that common compared to something like a supernova, even though it's already a very rare event, these are really unusual events.
0: So you would say that it's probably not a surprise that for a long time when we saw these brightening events uh, that were transient, pretty much all of them were supernovae and none of them were tidal disruption events because tidal disruption events are about a thousand times as rare as a supernova. So when you see a thousand of these brightening events, probably only at most a small handful of them are going to be tidal disruption events. Most of them are going to be supernovae so you really and this this sort of goes back to what we were saying about statistics if you want to see rare examples of events then you need large statistics so that the rare ones actually start showing up in significant enough in significant enough numbers that you can say oh this is not a typical event this doesn't fall into the main categories of things I know this is something different
1: yeah no totally uh so i mean the idea even of a tidal disruption event uh really only started in 1988 an astronomer named martin reese who you know i'm sure is a very uh famous theorist he came up with the idea interestingly came up with pretty much all the physics on how it works like or how it should work at the time in 1988 there's one or two you know candidate uh events and then in 2011 so just 10 years ago It was a real game changer at least for me that was when the first radio detection of a tidal disruption event occurred so this field is also just still really young and it's really we're just at the point where we're able to discover them and start studying them and seeing what's happening in these processes um I also think it's very cool because you know like we always think like what happens if you fall into a black hole and we'd like to have discussions about this and I mean if you want to see something in, you know, actually falling into a black hole, tidal disruption events are really, you know, one of the best ways to study to see what exactly happens in these situations and have these crazy environments surrounding the black hole and what we can learn about that.
0: Wow. Well, I have so many questions already. Let's let's go one at a time if that's okay with you. All right. So, first question, um You said that most of these tidal disruption events happen around the supermassive black holes we find in the centers of galaxies, and this is a little bit surprising to me because when I think about tidal forces, I generally compare them to the force of gravity, and the thing that strikes me most about the force of gravity versus tidal forces is that when you get farther and farther away from an object, from a Massive object, the gravitational force falls off as one over the distance squared. So if you get 10 times as far away, the gravitational force is only one one hundredth of what you get. But the tidal force falls off as one over the distance cubed, which means that this thing gets weaker much faster. When you're 10 times as far away, it's only a thousandth as strong. If you're a 100 times farther away, it's only a millionth as strong. So given that these supermassive black holes are, you know, yeah, they might be millions or billions of times the mass of a a stellar mass black hole. Stellar mass black holes are far more common. Many of them have companion stars. They move through the galaxy, which is a chaotic environment. Why are tidal disruption events... So commonly found in the centers of galaxies around these one supermassive black holes they have, rather than all throughout the galaxy where you have so many more times stellar mass black holes?
1: Sure. So, I mean, the first thing to keep in mind here is like there might be more around stars, you know, that are not supermassive black holes. But right now, because as I said, we have all these thousands and thousands of events to go through you have somewhat of filtering effect. It's much easier to find something if that's, you know, there's a black hole pretty at the center of every galaxy pretty much out there. So that's kind of like a good initial filtering criteria. The second thing to keep in mind is, okay, a stellar mass black hole. So like, you know, just a few times the mass of our sun, the size of a supermassive black hole at the center of a galaxy, you know, that can be millions of times uh, the mass of the sun or something like that. So, okay, it falls off but the overall zone of is much easier player. Like, it's much, still much bigger than a normal stellar sized black hole to attract a, st- a star in the first place to shred it apart and things like that. Um, the other thing that's actually interesting to note is you can't have a supermassive black hole that's too big uh, to have a tidal disruption event because you know there's a tidal radius as we're discussing, but we also have an event horizon on a black hole. So if it's bigger than 10 to the eighth solar masses, so, you know, uh, not quite a billion, but still like a very, very supermassive black hole. So like M87 star, for example, is bigger than 10 to the eighth solar masses, I think, which is the one we have the picture of the black hole of. Uh, The event horizon is in fact, further out than this tidal radius and you will never see a tidal disruption event there because it will go in and it'll get swallowed beyond the event horizon before it ever gets torn apart. So there is some biases in here. But I think it's also somewhat just early days <laughs> you yeah, know, I've, I've seen some reports unpublished that you know they might have found a tidal disruption event around you know some smaller black holes and things like that, but it's still uh, still very early days in this field, honestly. is probably the real answer here.
0: Is this, uh, is this also a difficulty when we look out and say, you know, as we can see more and more of the universe as our telescopes become larger aperture, as we're able to observe with faster cadences, so, sorry, sorry, that's jargon. As we're able to observe the same region of the sky more and more rapidly with less time between them, we're finding more and more events is it more difficult for the objects farther away to tell whether they're occurring in the center of the galaxy or the outskirts of the galaxy is it more difficult to tell a supermassive black hole is driving this or a stellar mass black hole is driving this or do we really look at the ones we can identify and say you know i'm pretty sure this is a tidal disruption event of something being torn apart by a supermassive black hole
1: so you have biases so when you go further away. One big problem is you actually just stop seeing things. Um, like, you know, we think of supernova so bright that, you know, one outshines the rest of the galaxy. Tidal disruption event is even brighter than that. It's even more luminous. But space is really, really big. Right. So when you start getting out billions of light years from Earth, you start seeing more just the brighter events. You don't see the fainter events. That's actually a big thing. So. If you look at the different kinds of supernovae, for example, when you go to greater distances, you're actually very biased uh, toward Type 1A supernovae happen much more like much further away, and that's because they just happen to be brighter, so you know you can see it further away. Um, it's very interesting to note. So, for example, on the other hand, on the other extreme. Uh, Supernova 1987A was the closest supernova we saw to Earth since the invention of the telescope, and it was uh, in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is one of our satellite galaxies, so, quote, only 170,000 light years away. And it was actually, you know, it was still bright enough you could see it with your naked eye for a few weeks if you were in the Southern Hemisphere. But it was about 10 times fainter than the average supernova. And had it not had occurred just in our local group, we probably never would have seen that. We have no idea how many of those kinds of supernovae are happening out there just because we can't see them. Um, yes, you were talking about <laughs> Sorry, um, and I got distracted.
0: But No, you did great. That was a great answer. And I was going to say, um, this is really fascinating. You know, As far as I know, uh, there have been at least two other um supernovae that have occurred in the milky way since the invention of the telescope but they weren't able to be seen with the naked eye because they occurred uh, basically through the galactic plane where there's all this intervening gas and dust so somehow um the there are galaxies that exist that are millions or even billions of light years away that can have a supernova go off in them and we will see those supernovae like they're brighter than the ones that occur in our own galaxy
1: yeah totally so the way i've heard it said is you know because yeah we just have a lot of dust in our milky way if you're looking out in the plane if you have a very clear sky you'll see it's not just a continuing band even to your naked eye you'll see patches in it right of light and dark So I was told once for optical, if the Milky Way is the size of the United States, this is the equivalent of seeing across Virginia is about the size of the Milky Way we can see with our eyes or with our optical telescopes. But yeah, so there's been um, two or three uh, supernova remnants. This is of course not an exact science because you you look through a rate with a radio telescope, for example, radio waves don't care about the dust, they'll come straight through the dust. And you know, you can see a cloud and it's expanding. So then you can say, look at how quickly it's been expanding over 10 years. Do a velocity calculation, it's this radius. 10 years ago, it's now this radius. When should it have exploded? And then circa 1900 or something like that. So, okay, that was a supernova explosion. And so we can see these. So if a galactic supernova were to happen today, because we now have radio telescopes and all these different things, we would definitely know about it. Um, But, yes, it is interesting that, you know, if you want to look for even, say, the biggest stars that we know of in our universe are pretty much not in our Milky Way. They're actually in the Magellanic Cloud because you can look straight out there and there's just, you know, a very good nebula there on the edge of which supernova 1987A happened. And you can see those study those much better. It's not that we probably don't have equivalently large stars in our own galaxy. We just can't see them as well.
0: Honestly, if we had a supernova go off in our own galaxy, regardless of where it was, uh, I think we'd get a flood of neutrinos in our neutrino detectors at this point. And so...
1: The interesting thing there is there's two things to note. The first is not if it's a type 1a supernova, because type 1a supernova is when a star called a white dwarf explodes. So that does not create neutrinos. The second is if uh, you had... um, a star that collapsed into a black hole, you'd only have neutrinos for a fraction of the second because the neutrinos are created when a neutron star is created. If it collapses further into a black hole, it would quench all the neutrinos. So it's not 100% clear, but yes. <laughs> Sorry. that's a No, thing.
0: that's great. That's great information. It's It's always important to know, like, you know, okay, look, so here's what we expect in the majority of cases, but the majority doesn't cover all of them. The universe is full of corner cases, especially once you start getting large statistics, and it's important to be sensitive to that.
1: Yes. And, um, but yeah, in the case of that actual neutrino, so normal core collapse supernova where you get these neutrinos. Um, yeah, so the way it would happen in that case, as I said, neutrinos are created when you squeeze into the center of a star into a neutron star. That's basically every single neutron you create uh, releases a neutrino. It's about the number of neutrinos that gets created in one of those supernovae is like the number of atoms in the sun. It's a very, very huge number. And yeah, all the neutrino detectors on Earth are in a network where if they suddenly all go haywire in a few seconds... Then you have an alert that a supernova went off and anybody actually uh, can, in the world can sign up for this network it's worth noting like you can just go it's called s news if you go on google and you know you can sign up and the other cool thing is the neutrinos arrive a few hours before the optical light um actually so the way that works is um neutrinos don't really interact with anything like you know there's hundreds of billions i guess streaming through us every second as we're having this conversation uh, and they don't really care, you know, you never talked about this before, it doesn't really affect you, but because of that, and the neutrinos are created at the center of a star, if they start going out and escaping, they will escape immediately from the center of the star. Light still has to work through all the stuff that is between the core of the supernova and going outward, so you actually will see these neutrinos a few hours before. It's the so they're not really traveling faster than light. It's just light will travel slower when there's stuff to run through before it can escape. So,
0: Yeah, this is actually one of my uh, favorite serendipitous discoveries that happened in my lifetime because back in 1987, when supernova 1987A occurred in the Large Magellanic Cloud, uh, we had over in Kamioka, Japan, uh, a experiment that was set up for a completely different reason. It was called the Kamioka Nucleon Decay Experiment. They had built an enormous tank filled with water and they were hoping to find proton decay because water has two hydrogen atoms in it. And if the proton is fundamentally unstable, which certain grand unified theories predict, uh, then you should see a proton decaying. Well, what happens when a proton decays? Well, it should decay into a charged lepton and a pion. Basically, it's going to decay into lower mass things that are going to move quickly because they have a lot of energy. When you convert mass into energy, right, E equals mc squared, you give a lot of kinetic energy to these particles. So they said, okay, we're going to build these big tanks of water. We're going to line them with photomultiplier tubes because when you pass particles that are moving close to the speed of light through a medium like water they slow down and they emit this blue light known as Cherenkov radiation. So if you That might- was
1: actually my uh, undergraduate career. I actually started working on cosmic rays. So I built a Cherenkov detector to look for uh, uh, emission from ultra high energy cosmic rays is what they're Oh,
0: that's really right? cool. Uh, yeah. Was that something a la Hawk or something a la Pierre Auger?
1: Auger, Pierre Auger Observatory. So
0: Okay. Yeah really cool stuff. Uh, and so surprise, surprise, the proton doesn't decay. People who were working on the SU-5 Grand Unified theory uh, fell out of favor in a lot of ways. But then in 1987, the supernova went off. And the first signal we had was, like you said, about four hours before the optical light first arrived, we got a burst of neutrinos that arrived over the span of only a few seconds. So that tells us that the time span over which neutrinos are produced in a supernova lasts only a few seconds. And then, after the neutrinos came, the light arrived. So when we realized this was great, they started building these massive, massive versions of it. They built Super Kamiokande, they built the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, all of these other experiments followed after, and they didn't have to change the acronym, because instead of a nucleon decay experiment, they ran a neutrino detector experiment. And that's how we detect you know, any of these early warnings. In fact, I heard, and this is maybe pretty new, but I've heard that if we had a star that was about to go supernova in our galaxy, when it began silicon burning, when it started fusing silicon into iron and nickel and cobalt and those intermediate elements, those basically last fusion reactions that occur, they would emit neutrinos of a characteristic energy in such great numbers that we should be able to detect them to allow us to get maybe a one to three day warning that a neutrino, a neutrino can actually come along and say, hey, guess what? Guess what's coming? We're about to go supernova.
1: That's cool. I hadn't heard that one, uh, actually. So I wrote a paper in my PhD days about radio emission from supernova 1987A because it's still going in radio, it's still getting brighter actually, because we're studying a shock wave going out. We're just interacting with all the gas around it. And one of the fun things there is uh, whenever I talk about 1987A, uh, I have to show a picture of myself from 1987. I was told this is mandatory, and yeah, I was like one year old in 1987. So um, the way I always explain it is, you know. We're studying how this supernova remnant evolves and grows and stuff like that. So you could imagine an alien anthropologist looks at my toddler picture and is like, how did she become who she is today when she grew up? And it's kind of what we're doing in astronomy.
0: I, I mean, that's that's one of the things I love about this is um, all of these different wavelengths of light, they, they peak and they fall at various different times. If I have a large extended structure Around anything, and I inject energy into it, it's likely going to start emitting in shorter wavelengths of light first, and then it will last longer in longer wavelengths of light. Plus, then if you get a central engine that powers it, that can inject energy into it like a spinning neutron star, um, then all of a sudden you're continuously accelerating the matter, injecting energy into it. And this can lead, as is in the case of the remnant of 1987A, continued emissions across the electromagnetic spectrum. I believe that the Chandra X-ray Observatory sees this emission uh, fluctuate, arise and fall in the X-ray, and I believe you see um, a continuum of emission in the radio that also has peaks and valleys?
1: Yeah. So um, so there's kind of two things here for supernova 1987A. The first is there's emission from the central region. So where there's presumably some sort of compact abject, probably a neutron star, though it's not 100% certain. And that's kind of studying that remnant and how it's you know evolving if there's energy injection stuff like that. The second thing to keep in mind for any supernova that happens is it sends out a giant shock wave at almost the speed of light. And the only thing slowing down that shock wave is the material it's slamming into. In the case of supernova 1987A, we can see that region, like we can actually see what's happening. So that's like the cool thing about 1987A. There is a famous Hubble picture where you look at it and it has this weird like ring structure around it it's actually probably more like an hourglass. It's just from our uh, viewpoint, it's like not quite as clear what's going on. And what we've seen um, in more recent years, so like, you know, the, I think it was roughly 2003 or so, the shockwave that was going out, there was this innermost ring of gas. And basically that ring of gas got completely shredded and torn apart And that's kind of what really lit it up at a lot of different frequencies. The thing that's interesting, because Hubble goes and looks, you know, every couple of years, Chandra, uh, we do in radio with the Australia Telescope Compact Array, because as I said, this is a Southern Hemisphere object, so we use the Australian telescopes for that. And you can compare different wavelengths and things like that, as you're saying, what is going on? So uh, the outermost ring, it's basically the shockwave has gone through that and it's fading uh, in optical, they think by the end of the decade, you won't be able to see anything anymore. Uh, X-rays have kind of leveled off now that this uh, shockwave went through it. So what, you know, it was a shockwave going through glowing gas. That was really what's causing that kind of emission. Radio, though, is still getting brighter, and it's actually probably a little bit delayed emission compared to what you're seeing at other wavelengths, things like that. There might even be some reverse shocks that you're seeing in this gas, so not just the forward shock that's going up from the supernova. You now have a more complicated structure. Yeah, there's all sorts of interesting things that you learn comparing the different wavelengths. And as I said, I like that object because you can actually see what's going on. So
0: Yeah, and that's, that's a real contrast to the other objects. Every other supernova that I know of is far enough away that we can't get anywhere near the kind of resolution we can for the supernovae that either occurred recently in one of the Magellanic Clouds or that occurred anciently in our own galaxy. Um, but one of the things I I think of when I look at that famous Hubble image, and I'll, I'll use that as the cover image for our podcast here, I, I get one, um, uh, is it looks sort of like a central bright eye with a uh, pearl necklace surrounding it, like an oval pearl necklace surrounding it. And then uh, if those of you out there uh, know Avatar The Last Airbender, uh, it sort of looks like Katara's hair loopies coming off of it.
1: Yeah. So the thing that's fascinating about that is I didn't realize that until I started this project working on Supernova 1987A. But yeah, um, so it turns out because it's a very complicated ring structure and like what's going on there. The first thing to note, note is when a star is near the end of its life, it's very common to have mass loss. So it's poofing out gas uh, pretty regularly, like Beetlejuice juice a few years ago. I'm sure people remember it was dimming. It's probably, you know, we think it was just mass loss. It poofed off some gas, poof being, of course, a scientific term here.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. Poof, poof is how we use it. It's honestly that that dimming and reddening and then re-becoming its normal self of Beetlejuice is one of the last things I remember happening before the pandemic started.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. Um, yeah, but was yeah. So the interesting thing about 1987 A is It was the first time in history that there's a a type of star. Usually it's a red supergiant is what explodes because when they're running out of material, the star turns red, uh, a red star. Supernova 1987A was a blue supergiant that exploded. And frankly, nobody was really expecting that was possible until this happened. So then, okay, why did a star that wasn't supposed to explode explode is the question. They now think the ring structure surrounding Supernova 1987A There was some sort of, it was a red supergiant. So a star that was going to explode had some sort of merger process that happened with another star in the roughly tens of thousands of years pre explosion. And that's what created all that ring structure. So, you know, it's a star that wasn't supposed to explode. As I said earlier in this uh, podcast, it's a star that is about 10 times fainter. So it's actually classified as a type two peculiar because they don't really know what to make of it. So, you know, are the two related, it's like, well, of course we need to see more of them. They're just hard to see, but it's a very fast, it's not a, a straightforward story as you might think at first glance. It's a very fascinating object
0: so this is this is one of those things that i think we we always forget about is that uh, when we think about all the stars that are out there in the universe we still default to thinking of them like our own solar system where yeah you have a star with planets and that's the norm and it turns out that's not the norm that's only about half of stars that are out there in the universe the other half of stars are in multi-star systems where there are two or three or more stars all gravitationally bound together. And if you have that going on, it's extraordinarily unlikely that all of the stars are going to form with exactly the same mass and undergo the exact same life cycle at the exact same time. So one of those stars is going to finish burning through its hydrogen first, the most massive one, and it's going to swell and become a red giant. And when that star swells, It's going to exhibit mass loss, but it's also going to flood the region around it with matter, with tenuously held matter, which is going to create a tremendous amount of orbital friction that can cause anything around it to spiral into it. We know when our sun goes super... Well, when our sun becomes a red giant, we're not going supernova. I never said that. (laughs) When our sun... When our sun becomes a red giant, what's going to happen is it's going to swell to about a hundred or so times its present size. It's going to definitely swallow the planets Mercury and Venus and may or may not swallow the Earth depending on... Whether it loses mass fast enough that Earth migrates outward, or whether it swells fast enough that it engulfs the Earth and causes us to spiral into the star. But if you were to, say, have a binary star system where we had a second star in the system, it's also possible that that star would get swallowed by whatever becomes a red giant first and in the case of 1987a it sounds like that's exactly what might have happened to cause this uh very strange looking uh phenomenon that we're seeing
1: yeah so uh the interesting thing to note yeah so as you said i mean most stars really have binaries that seems to be the default uh if you look out in the solar system that's actually particularly true for the most supermassive stars that are going to go supernova someday Uh, which is very interesting because, yeah, it uh, basically, you know, they have bigger gravitational attraction. So a bigger star, you know, they might either be, we don't know all the details behind it, but they either form together and something is collapsing and two stars are left very close to each other, or basically it's just gravitational attraction uh, and dynamics creates these binary pairs for the most supermassive stars. Um, It is also actually interesting to note for our sun, there is some theory, uh, so our sun, we should probably mention, you know, because it's not going to go supernova. Instead, it becomes a red giant and then poofs out its layers at some point and leaves behind what's called a white dwarf at the center of the system. And then there's going to be layers. And then, you, you know, you have pictures of planetary nebulae. We think oh, we're going to have a planetary nebula. There's a lot of theorists now who in planetary nebulae and stuff like that, who think our sun is actually not going to leave behind a planetary nebula or if at most... It's going to be just kind of like a ghostly thin ring of a planetary nebula, not like one of these beautiful structures you see in Hubble images or something like that, because a lot of dynamicists say you need a binary system to create those you don't get some complicated structure, uh, unless you have a binary in that system. So, I mean, I actually had a little bit of an existential crisis when I heard this because I always thought, oh, but well, we'll leave behind a pretty planetary nebula. So, you know, that's kind of nice. And then it's like, oh, you might not. You might just lose the stellar wind over a long enough period and not capture it. So,
0: yeah, I, I remember thinking when I first saw that beautiful picture of the Cat's Eye Nebula that, oh, that's a preview of what our sun is going to look like. And no, like to make those bipolar nebulae the ones with jets the ones with hourglass shapes the ones that that basically have these interesting bright features they they're all from binary systems and as it turns out i think about 80% of planetary nebulae look like that, and only about 20% are spherically symmetric and faint, uh, like maybe the, uh, what do they call it, the Ghost of Jupiter Nebula might yeah, be something few. like, is a preview of what our sun might become, but uh, but yeah, they're just sort of like these spherical greeny glows, and the green, I believe, comes from oxygen, but um, anyway, that's, that's a little too into the weeds for this, uh, and also they're not into your weeds and I want to talk some more about that. So if you're okay with it I'd like to go back to these tidal disruption events. So can you tell me when when you rip a star apart right you have these tidal forces we normally talk about it in the form of, hey, when you fall into a black hole, what happens? And the the word we love to use is spaghettification, where these tidal forces basically stretch you into a long, thin strand. And it's easy to visualize if you say, okay, I'm imagining I'm falling into a black hole uh, feet first because I want my head to survive the longest. So I fall in feet first, and what happens? Well... Yeah, it's easy to think, oh, I'm getting stretched into a long thin string because the force on my feet is greater than the force on the middle of my body is greater than the force on my head. So it pulls me apart. But we don't often think about the other part of that is that, you know, the part on the, let's say, on my left shoulder versus the part on my right shoulder, well... It's the same magnitude force, but it's a slightly different direction because they're actually separated by my shoulder width. So that's actually going to cause there to be a force that compresses me in the middle. Is that what triggers a nuclear fusion reaction during a tidal disruption event is not the part that makes you long, is not the part that elongates you, but that uh, transverse part, that part that compresses you in the uh, non-radial direction, the part that compresses you in the transverse direction. Is that what sort of squeezes the atoms or the nuclei together and leads to this runaway fusion reaction that causes the whole star to be destroyed or is that way off?
1: So no, (laughs) I guess is the first, the short answer. The longer answer is you don't actually get fusion created in a uh, tidal disruption event. So what you do have is you do have this process called spaghettification. The star will become elongated and become long and thin just because of the tidal forces and everything like that. And fusion actually at the center of the star stops uh, when this happens. Um, so because eventually the density, as you're pulling apart your star, is going to drop low enough that you can't sustain fusion. And this entire part of unbinding the star is maybe a few hours or something. It's a very short process compared to you know the millions or billions of years the star was burning before this happens. Um, What's really creating uh, what is happening, it's uh, interaction with the black hole is really what's creating uh, all the bright luminosity that you'll see. So uh, just because when material falls into black holes, like there's a lot of uh, energy that gets created from that process, things like that. It's similar. um, So we have these objects called active galactic nuclei, which are far more common than tidal disruption events. And this is just something where if you have normal gas falling into black holes, because there's a lot more gas out there than there are stars, right? So stray gas atoms falling in or more concentrated ones. And you'll see AGN, most sources in the radio sky at least, uh, are actually AGN, they're not stars. (laughs) So these AGN, these supermassive black holes, millions of light years away, spewing out uh, radiation as gas falls into them. And it's basically that for tidal disruption event, but high density and like a lot more of it all at once. And that's really what's creating that high luminosity that we were talking about.
0: So let me ask you a follow-up question then, cause that's different than I had thought it worked. So does that mean if we, uh instead of just using like a set of wavelengths of light, if we were able to do spectroscopy on these events, uh, which we can often with follow-up, would we be able to tell the difference between a tidal disruption event and a supernova event by looking for elements that are only produced during, say, the R process, that are only produced when rapid bombardment of neutrons creates certain elements that we know. Oh, this happens in a runaway fusion reaction with supernovae, but it doesn't happen with stars that are being destroyed by tidal disruption? For example, could we look at the abundance of iron or the abundance of zircon or the abundance of certain elements that we see just by looking at that, you know, point of light in the sky? And would that be enough to tell us, oh, this is or isn't a TDE or, oh, this is or isn't a supernova?
1: Yeah. So, uh, we're getting out of my wheelhouse a bit because I don't do classification for the specific elements for TDEs, but the general, as I said earlier, the big one that people look for is hydrogen. Um, if that exists in a TDE versus not because it's a star that hasn't burned out all of its uh, hydrogen yet. we uh, it was still in the process of fusion when it stopped. Um, What's just creating it though. So yeah, you have about half this material falls into the black hole creates an accretion disk and that's really what you're seeing here. Oh, this bright accretion disk that gets created. The other half goes into an outflow gets kind of flung out. Black holes are messy eaters. And yeah, you are also not going to see as many of the elements that you know for a supernova classification and stuff. It's going to look very different in its spectrum compared to a
0: TDE. So what I am what I'm seeing when I see a TDE, these are really the it, it gets torn apart, but it's not a fusion reaction that I'm seeing. What I'm basically seeing is this matter that gets either funneled into or around the black hole is going to create an accretion disk. It's maybe going to create accretion flows, and the flows that flow into or onto the black hole, that's going to be producing the light that I see, and that's what's lighting up these tidal disruption events.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, one of the most interesting things about uh, supermassive black holes is a small fraction of them create these relativistic jets as well. We don't quite understand the process of how exactly that works, but they're very, very bright in the radio. Um, You can even see them in quasars billions and billions of light years away if one's pointed at you. And there has, I said in 2011, that was a seminal year for TDE studies. And that was because, so the first, you know, really well studied TDE in many regards as the first radio detected one in fact was called Swift J1644 164457 57 which is a very complicated sounding name but Swift is the satellite that found it and then the 1644+57 57 are the coordinates for where it is in the sky and Swift normally looks for gamma ray bursts so these bursts from supernova explosions that create a bunch of gamma rays and it detected this gamma ray burst. Normally they only last a few seconds or minutes tops. And this one basically just didn't turn off and everybody was very confused why. And then it turns out though, when you looked in radio and you put up together all the pieces from different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, there was actually, when this tidal disruption event happened, a relativistic jet was created that pointed directly at earth. And uh, that's what we were seeing. And the thing that was even more crazy is this jet basically existed for about a year and a half and then it turned off. Uh, So presumably at some, you know, the material that was falling into this black hole was no longer fueling this relativistic jet. Um, And that's also very exciting because normally the jet structures we see in the universe, uh, you know, they last for thousands or even maybe millions of years or something like that. So something that happens in a year and a half, like, you know, that's a postdoc, you know, you can study that pretty quickly. Uh, so that was kind of crazy. As I said, we have all these outflows. Uh, we don't really understand a lot of details, but times, you know, how relativistic jets get created, things like that, but we can see them from very, very far away. They're very luminous events. The other thing that's crazy I should mention is, so we saw that one in 2011. There was another one detected at greater distance uh, than Swift J1644 plus 57. And then a few years later in archival data, somebody found a third one in, from Swift in 2011. And we've never seen another one of these since. So, wow. <laughs> you know, yeah. So, you know, I checked, you can't really order them on Amazon, but uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's kind of weird because it's like all these questions, how do these outflows work? And it's just like, well, until you get another one, you know what I mean? It's like really tough to say uh, what exactly happened. It is kind of the joke though, because um, so we're recording this before Christmas and, you know, the holidays are coming up and one of my colleagues, we have a VLA program where we can trigger the VLA if we see, you know, if there's a jetted tidal disruption event and she's going away from her laptop for the week of Christmas. So I'm like, she's like, yeah, like we're totally going to see the jetted TDE and you know, it's kind of like.
0: Uh, oh my. Have you, have you told her about the Blas Cabrera magnetic monopole story from 1982?
1: Uh, I think she's aware. Yes. But you okay, can share good, it with listeners if you want.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is one of my, uh, This is one of my favorite stories in all of science. Is basically uh, they were running an experiment in 1982 where they wound a coil of wire around uh, eight windings and they said, We're going to look for magnetic monopoles. We'll cool it down. uh, And if a magnetic monopole exists and happens to pass through this ring, it's going to cause a change in flux of, because we have eight windings eight magnetons where a magneton is like would be the fundamental unit of magnetic charge so you know they've they've seen fluctuations where maybe one of the Loops in the coil get stimulated and there's a blip of like one magneton. Uh, Very rarely they saw a blip of two and they never saw one of three or more. Well, Valentine's Day, February 14th, falls on a weekend. No one's in the office. They had previously injected liquid nitrogen into it, so it's running normally smoothly. They come back in when the weekend's over and what do they see? There's been a jump of exactly eight. It's like 7.9 seven bore magnetons, and they go, oh my god, what is this? And it was a remarkable paper. It set off a firestorm of similar experiments where people built bigger loops with more windings and cooled it down and all sorts of copycat experiments and no one ever saw another one. The next year on Valentine's Day, Steven Weinberg writes the PI of the experiment, Blas Cabrera, a poem and he says roses are red, violets are blue, it's time for monopole numbers two and in the almost 40 years since that happened now we have never seen another magnetic monopole so this jetted tde probably uh seems like another one of those wow did we happen to find the one example in the universe that will ever do this or
1: well it's, uh, it's kind of interesting because there were two others, it was they were further away. So you can't really see details on them like we could for this one. I will note those. So the, I had a professor in undergrad, a theoretical physicist who really, really wanted monopoles to exist because you know, we all have our scientific battles or whatever. But even he was saying that he was pretty sure that they were just playing a joke on uh, the guy who built the monopole thing. So uh, I think that's kind of the unofficial consensus in some circles of physics at least that it was they were playing a joke on him, which is a mean joke. but anyway, scientists are uh- people too.
0: Yeah, that that's a very mean joke if it happened. I I I'm not sure anyone knows how you would forge a signal like that. I don't but-
1: know, but uh that's just what, you know, even this guy who really wanted monopoles to exist told me <laughs> that happened.
0: Yeah, but but we're pretty sure that tidal disruption events exist and oh, also Oh yeah, and
1: um- People have found so in radio, as I said, we're not usually making the discovery in radio. We're following up on other wavelengths, but you know we do have sky survey data, for example, from the Very Large Array. It's doing a sky survey um, once every three years. Currently, it's done. It's it's in the middle of its second pass around. It's going to start the third. Uh, I guess next year or something. And uh, people have found, you know, you find a source and it's fading at a certain uh, cadence. And it's like, well, if it's really, really bright, if you can figure out what galaxy it's from, and it's fading really slowly, then you know you can go back look for more archival observations. People have found some sources that look to be incredibly luminous and would be consistent with a jetted TDE that went in like the '80s, for example. And then you know we're still seeing the slow fade of that uh, today in radio survey data and stuff like that. So there is some evidence that these guys exist. Um, otherwise. Um, and yeah, searching for off axis jets is definitely a huge, huge thing. Um, you know, so if there was a jet not pointed directly at us, then you would eventually start seeing that, uh, emission at later times. There's things like that you can look for.
0: Interesting. So a couple of years ago, we had a uh, scientist Anna Ho on the podcast, and she worked on, uh, a very famous transient event called at twenty one eighteen cow, commonly known as the, the cow, cow. Uh, and it is not a spherical cow. It is just a automated name that an automated sky survey picked out that said, "Hey, there was this amazing brightening thing here." And you get three random letters after the year, so it was it happened in twenty eighteen, and the three random letters it was assigned was cow, and there was a debate over whether this was a oddball supernova, like maybe a cocooned supernova that had a breakout shock event, or whether it was a tidal disruption event. And this is one of those things where I'm thinking, you know... um. The initial observation probably doesn't do the best job of distinguishing between those two, but follow-up observations across many wavelengths might hold some really valuable information there. Uh, you Have you studied this object, and what, what do we not, learn?
1: I have not studied the cow specifically, and, but I have collaborators who have uh, worked on that for sure. And it's actually interesting you say that because this week I actually saw a paper that came out some people that were studying in x rays, and they came to the conclusion that there's evidence of a compact object in the cow so something like a neutron star it was varying at a certain rate I can't quite remember all the details right now for the paper. But it was basically saying, okay, you know, after time you have energy injection that's happening in this system. So they think it was, you know, a very special kind of supernova explosion uh, is favored by their model. But yeah, that's something that you know it only takes years after, like you know, or very impatient people, of supernova starts and that that initial supernova or that initial uh, tidal disruption or e- event that rise is incredibly fast, but this slow fade is really a slow fade. I mean, there's objects that, you know, decades old and are still giving us new scientific information. Um, so yeah, the cow 2018, three years, it's like, well, there's still going to be a lot more studying of that object. And I think there's several other now they're F bots, fast blue optical transients is what they're called and figuring out what exactly is going on there within these supernovae is going to be interesting. But I think that's that's, currently the latest I saw, yeah.
0: That's really fascinating because, uh, you know... It sort of reminds me of what you said about tidal disruption events too, is that, you know, look we we had a theory that these weird things should happen but we didn't really see them until decades afterwards. And then we, we saw the first one and that was the tip of the iceberg of what's out there in the universe. As we gain more and more and more statistics, as we're getting, you know, 10, 20,000 more every year of the these, you know, brilliant transients, more and more of them are going to be these rarer and rarer objects. Are there either anything that is predicted to be out there that you haven't seen yet but that you're looking for and excited about, or is there something out there that you've seen? you know, one or maybe just a couple of that you can't really explain yet that you're really excited to learn more about?
1: Well, so this is kind of the unfortunate part where I can't talk about my active research until it's at a more advanced state. But um, all I can say right now, so I'm very interested because, you know, as I said, tidal disruption events in radio, that's like a roughly 10-year-old field where you can say, okay, this specific object went tidal disruption event. Now I'm going to see what happens in the radio. And there's still a ton of questions about what exactly is going on at later times uh, for these objects. So to give you an idea, because, you know, radio telescopes are a precious resource and very competitive get your time. Uh, Traditionally, what happens if you see an optical tidal disruption event and then you're going to go look at it is you don't, if you don't see any radio emission in the first month or two, then it's probably like, okay, that's just not going to be a radio TDE. We're not going to study it in that frequency because it's just not emitting. And then you go your merry way and wait for the next one to be discovered. And um, there are questions though. So there was recently a paper published uh, about an object called Assassin 150i. And there's a group that they looked, no radio mission at the beginning, and then it actually started brightening years later, has kind of a weird light curve. So what exactly is causing that sort of thing? I think that's going to be a really interesting question to see how that evolves. And I can't really say much more, but I can confidently say I'm not sure yet what's going on. So (laughs) that does answer your question there.
0: You know, that, that's really fascinating. It reminds me of a class of objects I learned about when I was in graduate school called uh, microquasars, where, okay, look, if you, have, if you have a quasar, which we believe is just an active galactic nucleus that's very active, but it's very far away and maybe you can't see the host galaxy, um, what you see is, look, these things turn on and they stay on, or they are are on and stay on, or they are off and stay off, and we don't really see them turning on and off because it happens on timescales much longer than the history of not only astronomy, but probably human existence. Like these these might turn on and off, but on timescales of many hundreds of thousands or millions or sometimes even tens of millions of years. But with microquasars, because these aren't supermassive black holes, but stellar mass black holes, we can see them fluctuate, turn on, turn off, turn on, turn off multiple times a year. So yep. is there's it actually pop-
1: a new type of object called changing look AGNs, which you can uh, look up. But yeah, it's a similar idea. AGN, as I said, supermassive black hole creates it, but basically changing in six months to a year's time scales or something like that. And it is also interesting to note that like, so tidal disruption events, uh, you know, or getting to the point where, you okay, maybe if you have 100-ish, you can start doing a little bit of statistics on what things look like. And they're not just like equal in all galaxies. So there's actually a tendency toward what's called post-starburst galaxies. So these are galaxies that, you know, interacted with another galaxy or something, really had a ton of stars uh, that happened in that galaxy. And uh, so how is that connected? That's not really clear. The connection to AGN is also not really clear. There's still a lot of questions for TDEs that we need to figure out,
0: and it, that's what it, makes
1: it exciting. So, yeah.
0: I mean, I think if we if we knew everything about it, this would just be uh, what what did they call it? This would just be stamp collecting, right? But we yes, we don't. exactly.
1: So, and yeah, I mean, I think this is. Uh, it's been pretty exciting. I'm just saying, you know. I'm sure every little girl who wants to be an astronomer when she grows up, I can just say at least for me, it's uh this is really kind of uh very exciting for me. It's really kind of something I always dreamed of doing and it's been very exciting to work on um tidal disruption events and stuff like that.
0: I mean that's that's amazing to get to basically make your own uh career and life dreams come true and for and to be able to say, like, yes, I I can do this. I'm capable of it. I'm learning interesting things. I'm discovering things that humanity has never known before about the universe. And here I am pushing yep. the frontiers of I our always, knowledge uh,
1: I always tell students that there's nothing quite like knowing something about the universe that nobody else knows. Like, it's really such an amazing feeling. Um, And to be able to, you know... Have your little bit of the piece of the puzzle that you can figure out and share with the rest of humanity and stuff like that it's really uh, it's very humbling that i get to do this i'm always feeling very lucky that it all worked out so you
0: know can i can i ask you do you remember what you either discovered or saw or realized uh where you knew you had done that for the first time where you were like oh wow like i i know something that nobody else has ever known.
1: Hmm, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, because there's like you know little discoveries you make that nobody else knows that are not terribly interesting. Like you know the state of your socks and the sock jar. I guess technically is something, but you know. But on a more broad scale, I guess is. Uh, I think it was really uh, the Supernova 1987A project that was really kind of. Um, so what we I was doing because I was studying it was. 2013 to 2017 was my data, you know, for my PhD project. So what the radio was doing. And as I said, there was uh, the shockwave traveling through that innermost ring. And I was studying, you know, how big the ring was, and you divide by time, you get the velocity. And it was actually going faster. And I was very confused about this. And then I remembered, you know, uh, that's actually... When the density changes, you have to have conservation of momentum. So the velocity, once the shock wave left uh, that innermost ring, it actually sped up a little bit. Not as fast as, of course, is when it first slammed in, but still. And that was really kind of that thrill of like, wow, um, that was really exciting to me. Um, so,
0: Wow. So that's that's kind of like if I take a uh, a small ball and a big ball and I put them the small ball on top of the big ball and uh, and I drop them both from a large height. Uh, that the small ball is going to basically ricochet up much faster and higher than it ever went on its way down because it's uh, it, it's basically recoiling, right? This is this is how energy and momentum work. And you actually saw that saw evidence of something just like that happening in the. Uh, in the material that was surrounding the remnant of 1987A.
1: Well, so the shockwave that was traveling through this material. Yeah, so uh, the paper it was like we ended up titling it the reacceleration of the shockwave or something like that, because that's really what you were seeing. It's like slamming into something, you're plowing through slowly, and then you do speed up a little. So like in your example, you drop the ball, the ball will come back, but it won't come back exactly as high as you were, right? But it will ricochet back. So. Um,
0: That's pretty, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. One of the, uh, one of the other things I know you've gotten into and uh, maybe you've always been interested in is you also write articles. You are very interested in, um, in popular communication and you've written, uh, popular articles for a number of, for a number of different outlets. Uh, can I ask you, um, what what has drawn you into that and what are your favorite things to write about?
1: Sure. So, um, yeah, so I start I got into astronomy because so I really like stories is actually like my thing. And, you know, the story of the universe and how everything is in it is really kind of the biggest story we have. Uh, that's always really drawn to me. And I actually always like to write. I think before I wanted to be an astronomer, I wanted to be Lois Lane uh, from Superman. And, uh, and Carl Sagan reading his works uh, was hugely influential on me as a teenager. And I've made this lovely mistake of thinking all astronomers uh, do public outreach and write and communicate what they do, because I feel like, you know, I'm very passionate about my passion. You know, I love to share my excitement with other people. So it was just a natural fit. Of course, then you learn like a lot of astronomers don't do that. That's another story, probably. Um, but yeah, so I started writing for Astronomy Magazine and uh, other places like Discover Magazine. I write for, put had stuff on the website, Scientific American, things like that. And it's kind of often just things I'm interested in at the time or uh, stories I thought was interesting. Sometimes like I hear an interesting talk because of course, if you're in an astronomy department, a lot of people come through talking about a lot, a lot of interesting things. And it's very nice if there's like, something that's not necessarily even your research, but you just want to learn more about. <laughs> that's a good excuse. Um, I will say though, the re- uh, what probably gets the most eyeballs for, you know, of everything I write is actually on Reddit. So I, I write- I
0: know about that. You are uh, Andromeda321. Yeah. And astronomer here. That's what you say. Uh, astronomer here. And that's you. That's Yvette.
1: That is me. Yes. Uh yeah. So I started that and that was actually from a very different motivation. Uh, Cause you know, I just had my Reddit account, like, you know, many people do to kill time sometimes. And I really don't like misinformation when it's on the internet. Like, you know, I could have saved a lot of time in my life if I had another pet peeve, but I think there was a, a thing once where I was like, you know, what are you most scared of in the universe? And there's a very highly upvoted comment that it's like, gamma ray bursts are going to can kill us all in a second and then i really don't like that cuz it's like hi i'm an astronomer like the odds of this happening it's like not really high cuz you know all these different reasons and uh people were just genuinely like really appreciative that i what took the time to explain it and started asking other questions and that's kind of where it all began from and um yeah so like i'll still see stuff and then just say hey like you know this isn't true and i Reddit gets like a lot of bad, uh, press and everything like that. But I've honestly like, you know, it's been very positive. I feel uh, going out. There's actually a ton of students out there now who like I run into who say they got into astronomy because of stuff I wrote there, which is always really incredible and humbling and everything like that. And, um, yeah, it's just been also very good. I think to keep a broad perspective of things, um, and, you know, see what's going on out there in, uh, in popular science and stuff like that,
0: um. I think I think that's really important for three different reasons, and I'm going to try to keep them all straight in my head. Uh, the first is that look, it's. It's wonderful when you see misinformation out there and you have the correct information because you have the expertise to be willing to put yourself out there and share it, uh, regardless of what people's reaction is. Like that in itself is laudable. The second thing that I think is important to remember is there are lots of people doing all sorts of things in life that that do have bad experiences. But also, that isn't universal. That isn't everyone's experience. People have a variety of experiences. And even if someone has a good experience, that doesn't negate that bad experiences exist and we should maybe think about doing something to help people who have bad experiences. But also, that doesn't mean that anyone is doing anything wrong you've had good experiences and i'm honestly just super happy for that that you haven't had bad experiences and have had good experiences
1: yeah i mean to be clear like i've got you know like people yelling at me on the internet over but i think it's also the mentality you go in or it's like i can just block you or something like that (laughs) like that's you know or yeah you, you also have to be able to, like, plug a, plug a uh, walk away from your laptop and plug out your phone turn off your phone, stuff like that sometimes. But I think it's net been positive. Also, yeah, like, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of a interesting thing. But as I said, the net positive has always been better for me. But anyway, sorry, your third point.
0: No, no, that was awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, and I think the third thing is to remember that uh, although you are doing it, in part because something inside you is driving you to do it, you're also doing it because it's important to you to have the impact that you know getting correct, comprehensive, accurate information out there can have on others. And the fact that you've helped inspire people, that you've made an impact in that way, I'm sure that's got to be fulfilling in an entirely different way than the scientific research that you do that's also fulfilling is.
1: Oh, totally. So I'm sure you had this experience, too, with your blog, but it is because like, you know, you're kind of just writing and putting it out there. And then you kind of realize like it's actually being read by real people. And, you know, I get messages from people where it's like, oh, I talked about this post with my kids or with my spouse. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, okay. You know, things like that. Or it's like, it's actually out there. And, um, yeah, so sort of the craziest story like this. So at some point, because I, I get a few messages a month, at least sometimes more from students who are like, hey, um, in high school or whatever, and I'm interested in maybe being an astronomer. So I wrote a post, which is basically just, so you want to be an astronomer, and it's all my thoughts about astronomy and how to do it if you want to do it, which you know, uh, gets around because a lot of people of that age from all around the world are on Reddit. And uh, last February, I got a message. We had our recruitment for the accepted PhD students here at Harvard. And it's a, one of the students wants to talk to you. And I was like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. Like, can I ask why? And I was like, yeah, I talked to the student who's from Puerto Rico. And he said, yeah, I found that post of yours about how to be an astronomer. And I'm not from a background where I know anything about this, but I read that and I just did everything you said. And, you know. We're actually working together now on a project like he's here now at Harvard, and that's kind of amazing that, you know, reaching people who might not have access to good information. You know, the Internet, it's very easy to have bad information, but you have to also make an effort to make sure there's good information and those connections can be really strong and uh, really help people in ways that you never imagine.
0: I mean, that's that's an incredible story. And it's also got to be incredibly rewarding to know that, you know, look, I. I know that what I'm doing is valuable, but here I have the tangible evidence that I really had a major impact on one person's life here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and uh, it's been really nice. Uh, I've gotten a few of these notes by now that you know somebody went off into solid state physics or this and that or you know, going to the double A's, even virtually last year, I got messages from several students who were really excited about going to grad school because they read my posts and that's how they got into it. And I was like, wow, this is, this is crazy.
0: I think that's a really, really important, uh, thing that you said there is that, look, we, in, in all walks of life, um, it's easy to focus on the elements of what you do and the elements of where you are that need changing. We're like, look, this isn't, this isn't going well. We're not serving the people we're trying to be serving here. This is this is full of problems. But it's also important to remember, look,, uh, there are wonderful things about doing this. There are things that we love about doing this, and there are reasons to say, like, look, like, there are a bunch of things that will affect us in a variety of ways that that we do need to work to change together but also being a part of this story is also a a wonderful wonderful thing learning how things work that we can understand the universe and learning how we do and then making those contributions yourself to improve that understanding that's that's something that i think we need to make sure doesn't get lost because it's not just that this is valuable and that's why we do it there's huge parts of it that are a joy to yeah, do as yeah well. totally
1: totally i mean as i said earlier i just feel so lucky every day that i get to do what i do and i get to be paid to do it and I think in astronomy, a lot of people have a lot of existential dread about, oh, am I going to get a permanent position or not? But every single time I'm just like, I just feel so lucky that I get these few years. Even if it was only these few years, it still has totally been uh, quite a ride and it's been so enjoyable. And I think for something like this in astronomy and like outreach, it's also just very important because, you know, science is unfortunately very divisive these days. A lot of it's politicized. But, you know. If people are exposed to science at all, it turns out it helps their way of thinking and things like that. And astronomy is, you know, a science that is not very politicized. We're all just like, oh, that's cool. But if you're introduced into scientific thinking, then, you know, that does help people process information from other parts of their lives and things like that. So I think it's really important to do these efforts and to make sure that, you know, it's a bit of work at the coalface, but make sure there's good information out there that people can access when they have questions about things.
0: Well, I absolutely agree, and I, I super, super laud you for all of the stuff you do on both the research front and also on the public communication front. Um, as sort of bringing those two things together, one of the things that I'm really curious about is uh, as someone who's involved with radio astronomy and as someone who's involved on this particular frontier of studying the the deaths of stars, either by being gravitationally torn apart and accelerated by compact massive objects, or as dying from natural causes in these incredibly bright explosions—supernovae. Uh, um, You have had sort of uh, really like the last decade where you've been actively involved in this. And I know that uh, what we know now is so much more than what we knew a decade ago. If you were to say, okay, I want to imagine what we're going to learn over the next decade. And I'm assuming here that uh, the James Webb Space Telescope launches and is a success, and I'm assuming that We have uh, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope uh, can mitigate most of the satellite pollution that's going to occur there. And we will continue to detect large numbers of transients. And we will be able to identify them as either supernovae or supernova-like events. um, And we won't get super, super, super confused all the time. Um, Where do you see our understanding taking us over the next decade that, you know, that will be a huge improvement over where we are today?
1: Sure. So, I mean, it's almost a joke in uh, astronomy internet, but the galactic supernova, if we were to see one of those in the next 10 years, that is a complete game changer because as I said, 1987, you can actually see it. I mean, that is... Literally so bright, you won't be able to see anything else, probably at a lot of frequencies, uh, because something like that is just such an energetic, such a bright event. So that's kind of always the caveat of if and when that galactic supernova happens, uh, that's a complete game changer in the field. I think otherwise, if you're kind of looking more general at transient astronomy, the merger or the Uh, Being able to work with gravitational wave physics, that is really going to take off and make things change in a really exciting way. So I haven't worked on it as much just because various reasons uh, in my career, but I'm tangentially working, you know, gravitational wave follow up with telescopes like LIGO and looking for these neutron star mergers or black hole mergers. And there's just a lot of uh, excitement there right now in that field and what that where that's going to take us. I think that's going to be a huge part of the puzzle. Uh, I'm also very excited. So uh, the next generation VLA and the square kilometer array are, you know, by the end of the decade going to be under construction, maybe even some initial commissioning stages, and you're going to be able to, you know, look to even deeper limits than we can right now in radio. Radio, unfortunately, is kind of limited by distance. Uh, you're not going to get as much uh, sensitivity limit uh, limit usually in radio versus if you're using Chandra X-ray telescope or something like that for various physical reasons. Mainly our energy is a lot lower, so you need much higher densities often. So something like that is going to be a huge game changer in going forward because you know, you're going to be able to see like 10 times more tidal disruption events, things like that. So that's going to be really exciting um, as those projects get off the ground.
0: You know, one of the one of the things I'm really looking forward to related to uh, neutron star mergers, which we've we've seen one where we actually were able to see a, a large amount of. Uh, electromagnetic follow-up as well is what I call a trifecta event, where we get a neutron star-neutron star merger, we see its gravitational waves, we see the electromagnetic signals from it, and we also become able to detect cosmic particles from this event, things like neutrinos or high-energy cosmic rays and I think that that will be just as revolutionary as it was when we saw that very first neutron star, neutron star merger.
1: Oh, totally, totally. I think there's a lot of different things like that. and I mean, there's so many things. The thing that's exciting about transient astronomy that is unexpected that you can stumble across almost like, you know, as I said, like relativistic jets. Nobody was really expecting that a TDE would ever do something like that until they saw it. Blue supergiant exploding. Nobody expected that until they saw. There's all these things where that's why I kind of like observation, where it's like, okay, you can really uh, the universe throws all these curveballs at you and reminds us that we don't really know as much as we think we do sometimes, right? So
0: yeah, I mean, that's that's my favorite thing about when we have these new instruments or these new observatories or these new, pretty much anything that's out there is look, we can say, okay we built this thing because we expect to see this and we expect to see this and we expect to see that. And fine, you're probably going to see examples of that. And also we're going to see more of what we already know is out there. And we're going to see fainter and more distant objects because we're more sensitive. Uh, And maybe we'll be able to probe them better because we'll have better angular resolution. But the most exciting thing to me is when we push our limits and we're able to see fainter or deeper or more granular, Or in any way where we've never been able to see before, that means we're going to be sensitive to things we haven't been sensitive to before. So there's always this potential for serendipitous discovery of things that are beyond what we had theoretically expected, or beyond the predictions of our current models. And that I feel is where some of the biggest potential for scientific advances come from, are in the places where, look, we're looking at the universe in a new way for the first time, and we don't know what's going to appear. For example, we built the Hubble Space Telescope to measure the Hubble constant. That's why it's named the Hubble Space Telescope. Is that the most revolutionary thing we learned from the Hubble Space Telescope I will I will pick my one swear word for the podcast and say hell no 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 Hubble was instrumental in measuring the experimental evidence for the accelerated expansion of the universe Hubble showed us things that we didn't even know would would be possible in our universe um and and here we are looking back on it and like oh yeah also it measured the hubble constant like that's that's a great one but it's, it's very certainly helpful. not the <laughs> only thing
1: yeah no it totally. is
0: very helpful <laughs>
1: No, it's definitely one of those. As I said, I'm interested in um, the story of the universe. And I think that's really kind of the most amazing thing to me is the universe keeps uh, surprising us. And the story is just so far more fascinating than a human mind ever seems to come up with. Right. So uh, it's always one step ahead. So, but
0: yeah, and that's exciting. And that's fantastic because it encourages us to keep looking in new ways. And it encourages us to say, hey, if you want to inspire future people down the line, make sure you're looking in ways that push these frontiers because that's where the secret lies, not under the lamppost that you've already built, but light up that area that you haven't seen before. And who knows what you'll find there. Totally. So- We're about out of time. And I want to ask you if you have any final words that you'd like to share with our listeners.
1: Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting, like for astronomy, I think we live in, you know, a very complicated world, which seems to be increasingly divisive and stuff like that. But the thing to remember, like if you think about all the all the nations in the world you know everything like that like we still all have the same astronomy like there isn't you know we still look up at the same stars we all are in the same solar system it really is something that brings us together on a scale nobody else does and i know a lot of people sometimes think oh astronomy is scary and people ask like don't you ever think of the vastness of space and stuff and well it doesn't really scare me that's probably somewhat of selection effect if it scares you you probably don't want to be an astronomer but what always has made me really excited is you know of all the amazing things we see in the universe, we're the only thing that looks back at, you know, the universe and everything that's out there. And I've always felt like, you know, as I said, very lucky to be play a part in discovering these things. But I think we all are, you know, people who look up and the only part of the universe we know that looks back and wonders about all these things. And that's really special.
0: That, that is a wonderful message, and I, I too love how astronomy, the sky, and the story of the universe, the cosmic story that honestly brought us into existence, is something that we all share and should unite us all. Like We, we should remember that we're all connected cosmically uh, despite our differences, um, and that, that is a really remarkable thing um yvette i want to thank you for joining us thank you for being my guest on the starts with a bang podcast and uh, this was fun (laughs) it was fun for me too and congratulations on all the wonderful research that you're doing and uh hopefully uh someday in the future uh we'll be able to talk some more about the things you can't quite talk about today
1: (laughs) sure thing
0: All right. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters, and I'd like to thank every one of you who's donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Brian Kinsella, Chad Marler, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Kutas, Dominic Turpin, John Methot, John Van Balaguyen, Matt Conroe, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Franson, Punitive Expedition, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Andy and Wall, Brian Terry, Danny... David Charney, Denier, Flo, Frank, George Church, Jerry Wilterding, John kozura Jose Enrique, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Texera, Rafael Wojchuk, Randall Slimak, C. Green Mango, Sean Foley, Vlad Pashkovsky, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, Andres chovinek Andrew Jason, Arnulfo Zapeta, Benhead, Bob Shire, Bob Unger, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Itdings, Casey Haskins, Dan Stelen, Dana Bridges, Darren Redfern, David Hibbets, David Taschioni, David Wolf, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane, Gabriel Nadair, Glenn McDavid, Hellbender, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hanna, Neil Flood, Paul Lester, Paulina Barron, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Rushin Shah, Sam Terzakian, Steve Schaber, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas Aal, Tomas Walgren, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vandenhuvel and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and I'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.